Well, we are finally finished with Isaiah chapter 6, and we are now moving into Isaiah chapter 7. And uh, <clears throat> I wanted to read to us this morning Isaiah chapter 7, um, verses 1 all the way through to 25. And uh, the title of this sermon is called The Sign of Emmanuel. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramali, a king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shir Jashub, and meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the end of the washerman's field, and say to him, Be careful, keep calm, do not be afraid, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of resident Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, and let us tear it apart, and divide it amongst ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It won't happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim is going to be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. Notice God doesn't even give his name. He just goes, that man over there, that Ramalia's son. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices and in the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and at all the watering holes. And in that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the river, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and the hair of your legs and to take off your beards also. And in that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two goats, and because of the abundance of the milk they give, he will have curds to eat, and all who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. And in that day, in every place where there is a thousand vines worth of a thousand silver shekels, there will be only briars and thorns. 
And men will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. And as for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns, but they will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. I hate reading long passages like that, especially when I'm trying to have my devotions, because I don't understand half of what I just read. Make sense to you? Do you guys tell me what we just read? Briars and thorns. Roset bushes. Uh, she's making it a little bit more colloquial. A woman's going to give birth to a kid. Perfect. Before the kid is born, everything that God has said is going to happen will have happened. That's the sign. The sign of Emmanuel. Okay, move on. Let's go home. Ask God what he, God would do for you. And then he refused. And then goes, okay, fine, I'll choose. Okay. Well, we'll get to that in just a second. But that's exactly right. God said, there's going to be this miraculous sign to prove that what I say is going to happen will happen. The sign of Emmanuel. But how does that apply to us? And where does it all come into my life today? And we're going to hopefully, by the end of our time this morning, get there. But let's start, first of all. Um, Isaiah chapter 7 verses 1 and 2 starts this with us. There's the terrible political times. Now, isn't it intriguing to me, it was intriguing to me as I reflected on this yesterday, that I'm in my own world facing some really interesting times politically. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and preach anything political, but I'm just telling you as a human being and as an American citizen this is kind of disconcerting to me right now, where I'm at. And I don't have any control over it. You know, there's times I just want to throw my hands in the air and go, you know what, God? Because ah! what is my vote going to do? But the reality is, it ain't mine to worry about. But we'll get there. You see, verse 1 and 2 tell us that there's this horrible thing happening, and we don't have to understand it. We just need to understand that they were shaking in their boots, literally. It was so bad, what, was, what they were facing, that the king of Judah was scared to death, and the people of Jerusalem were scared to death, because horrible things were about to happen. Because they were seeing these powerful kings taking over bits and pieces of land, more and more, closing in, closing in, closing in. Finally, these enemies turned their attention towards Judah and Jerusalem, and Ahaz, the king, is scared to death. So what is he going to do? Well, now we get into this interesting situation because Isaiah doesn't give us the full history of what's happening here. You see, we have to look in other parts of the Bible to understand the full picture. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to have you turn with, hold three fingers in your Bible, okay? You're going to be staying with Isaiah chapter 7. You're also going to be going to 2 Kings chapter 16. And you're also going to be going to 2 Chronicles. Okay, and we'll get there in a minute. All of the scripture references are on the slides, so you, you don't have to worry about me repeating them or whatever, but they're there. But this is the situation you need to understand 
with with 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1 through 20. And I'm sorry to have to read all this stuff to you, but I'll paraphrase it as much as I can, but you need to get an understanding of what's happening. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was only 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. This poor man only lived to age 36. Unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And even, listen to this, he even sacrificed his son in the fire. What that literally means is that he sacrificed one of his children to a a detestable God by literally burning him alive. Following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, he offered sacrifices and burned incenses at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaleh, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. Now this is where it's bringing us to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Uh, They came to fight, but they couldn't overpower him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Aram, Recovered Elath, blah, 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 let's move on. I, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. Now, Assyria is where Iraq and Iran is right now, okay? And this was like the major power of that part of the world at that time. So he sent a messenger to the, to the big guy, and he said, come and help me. I've got these little guys that are around me trying to take over my land. I need you as an ally. So it says, verse 8, Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace and he sent them as a gift to the king of Assyria. He formed an alliance with this big giant power trying to get him to protect them. He's being very politically astute. He is looking around and seeing where is his threat. He's assessing the the danger that's about about him, and he's looking for someone bigger and stronger to become an ally to him, and he sends what wealth he has to this king, and he says, join me in my fight against these guys. So he literally buys the services of Tiglath-Pileser, aligning himself, but watch what he had to do in order to be an ally to this king. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, And he saw, while in Damascus, an altar. Now this wasn't God's altar. This was in Damascus, up in Syria. And he said, the king saw that and went, ooh, I like that altar. So he literally had a a, a drawing made of the altar, and he sent it back to the high priest in the temple of of God and said, build this altar in the temple, because that's where I want to make my sacrifices. And then it says, when the king came back, he came in, saw the altar, and went, yeah, that's what I wanted. And he begins to pour out offerings, grain offerings, and blood offerings, and fellowship offerings. And it says, the bronze altar that used to stand before the Lord, he brought from the front of the temple, and from be- and between the new altar and the temple Lord, and he put it on the north side. See, he's rearranging the temple of God so that he can bring his new altar in so he can worship on his new altar because this is the kind of altar he wants to worship on. King Ahaz then gave these orders and he said, this is what I want you to do. You, the priest, I want you to to worship on that altar as well. 
And finally, let's see, verses, oh, verse um, 18. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. In other words, he literally changed the house of God and the way that they worshipped so that he could appease his political ally who was stronger than him but who he had placed his trust in. He literally changed the way the nation of Israel worshipped God. To, to appease his political ally. That's scary to me. And then we go back to Isaiah chapter 7. And we see here, in verses 10 to 14, that which um, Jesse and Evelyn alluded to a few minutes ago. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, you're facing all these horrors. You've got this terrible, horrible thing getting ready to happen to the nation. And you're the head of the nation. You are the representative of the lineage and the house of King David, to whom all the promises of God have been made. So the Lord God comes to you and says, Ask me anything. And literally it says, Whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights, I'm giving you, Ahaz, a blank check. Ask me anything and I'll do it for you. But instead, he goes to Tiglath-Pileser and puts his hope and his trust in him. And literally, he looks at God and says, or Isaiah, but speaking to God, I will not ask... I will not put the Lord to the test. Which is scripture. Because you may not remember or may not know, but the law of God says that every king over the nation of Israel is to have his own personal copy of the scriptures and he is supposed to study it regularly so that he will know how to please and honor God so that the blessing of God will stay on the nation. Interesting. The leader of the nation is supposed to read God's word on a regular basis so he'll know how to procure and keep the blessing of God on his land. I'm not saying anything political, folks. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. But remember a few weeks ago I told you that Isaiah was called to speak a hard word. And what did I tell you? God said to Isaiah, you will speak it. But all it's going to do is harden their hearts even further. You see, Ahaz, it said in 2 Kings chapter 16, he did not follow the path of his king, kingly father David. He did the things that were detestable. He aligned himself with the worship practices of the nations that they, that they outcast when the, when the children of Israel came into Canaan. Remember when God brought the people of Israel into Canaan, he said, do not practice their worship practice. Don't even marry them. Because they'll bring in their false worship into your life. Do not have anything to do with it. But Ahaz has done exactly that. Even to the point of putting one of his kids in the fire alive as a form of worship. See, Ahaz's mind and heart was, I have great responsibility to keep this nation safe. And I'm going to use any resource available to me to make that happen.
And then Isaiah says, Hear now, house of David. See, it's not just this one man. He represents the entire lineage and whatever line of David is to follow. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, I could spend hours talking to you about this sign. Quite honestly, it's been thousands of years of discussion over this prophecy. There's not time in this morning service to talk with you about this, but let me help you to understand a couple of things. Yes, scholars are convinced that this is a prophetic message about a coming Messiah. And we all hear it in the, we see it in the book of Matthew. And the virgin shall give birth and give and give, uh, and, and give birth to a son and shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's all part of the Christmas story and a part of the story of Jesus. So there is no question that theologically this is a message about the Messiah. We don't have time this morning to dissect all of that. We might, I might come back to that some other time if you guys want to know more about it. But the thing you need to understand, this was a sign for Ahaz, a man who did not believe or serve the living God solely. He might have believed a little bit, but he wasn't sold out 100% to the living God. And so this message and sign from God himself to Ahaz was, you want proof that I can do what I said I'm going to do? I'll show you proof. You see that little girl right there? Before, before she gets pregnant, and in those days, women didn't get pregnant until they were married. She wasn't even married. She was just a fully developed young woman who was ready to have children and ready to get married. You see that young woman right there walking through the courts before she gets married and has a kid, and that kid is old enough to understand right from wrong and eat curds. These two nations are going to be gone. These worrisome people, these ones that you're so afraid of, I have the power and I'll prove it to you. She'll have a child. And, then, and by the time that child is born, these guys will be gone. So see, the message for Ahaz was something he could see, touch, and feel and experience for himself. So there's this duality in this vision or this message of the, of the, 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 the virgin that gives birth. And again, we don't have time to go into it all. But the reality is, God had come to him with this gracious offer. I'll do anything for you. Blank check. All of the power that is at my disposal is at your disposal, Ahaz, because I have a covenantal promise with you that I will take care of David's line and the house of David and the nation of Israel. That's what my covenantal promise is. So just try me. I'm not going to test the Lord. Boom! Remember I said a few weeks ago, Every human being who hardens their heart reaches a point of no return. This was Ahaz's point of no return. He went all the way down to his grave from this point on. He sought worldly wisdom to protect his country, to fight against um, all that was going on. Second Chronicles chapter 28. Excuse me, 20 through, 22 through 25. 
In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the God of Damascus who had defeated him, for he thought, well, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I'll sacrifice to them so that they'll help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all of Israel. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away and he shut the doors of the temple and he set up altars on every street corner of Jerusalem. In every town in Judah he built places of worship to the other gods and he provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. He literally turned his back on God to the point of shutting down the temple. He said, you people want to worship? Worship the gods are going to do something for you. Worship the gods who have helped our, our enemies. And so he set up places of worship all through the city of Jerusalem, on every street corner, it says, and throughout the nation. Any place that there was a hill, he set up an altar and he said, you burn incense and you pray to those gods, because they're the ones that are going to keep us safe, just like they kept our enemies safe. <gasps> Can you understand and imagine the leader of a country falling into that kind of complete apostasy? What horrors are facing this nation of Israel, of Judah? But that's where he was. His heart was so hard. But last night, God showed me something so, so, so cool. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. Isaiah 7, verse 3 says, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son and meet King Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Now, turn to 2 Kings 18.17. And it says, The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander to the large, with a large army to Lachish, to King Hezekiah, who was the son of Ahaz. So Ahaz is gone. King Hezekiah has now come into, reign, into rule. And it says, They came up, these, these messengers from the king of Assyria, remember Tiglath-Pileser? the king of Assyria that Ahaz had aligned himself with, these messengers came up to the Jerusalem and stopped at an aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. 7-3, Isaiah, under the leading of the Lord, says, I need to meet with Ahaz at the end of the, upper, at the, end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the end of the washerman's field. And then later, Hezekiah has to meet with king Assyria and its leaders, and they came to this same spot. And here they called for the king and Eliakim, some, uh, the, 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 the palace administrator and the chief secretary and the recorder, leaders of the nation of, of Israel, of Judah, went out to meet them. And this is what the commander said to them. You tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. And on whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt? That splintered rain of a staff which pierces a man's hands and wounds, even if he leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, well, we're depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places the altars Hezekiah removed, saying, Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? As he got the story wrong. It wasn't Hezekiah, it was his father Ahaz. But he's using something that's familiar to them, to try and undermine their trust in God. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you thousands of horses, if you can put riders on him. And then, skipping down, he says, and furthermore, 
Have I come to attack and destroy this palace, this place, without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. So now we have Ahaz has made an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. And now the king of Assyria, in the, a few years later, when the son has taken over Hezekiah, literally says, who are you trusting in? You can't trust in Egypt, and you certainly can't trust in God. And oh, by the way, your God told me to come and take over. Now what's Hezekiah supposed to do here? His father totally messed up. What's, his father, what's Hezekiah supposed to do? Well, the reality is, Hezekiah did a cool thing. Hezekiah was amazing. Second Chronicles chapter 29. Now, I also have to tell you, 2 Chronicles chapter 29 matches up with Isaiah chapter 36, 37, 38, and 39. So we're going to be only looking at Chronicles, but it's in Isaiah as well, the same storyline. And it says this, Chronicles 29, verse 3. In the first month of the first year of Hezekiah's reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. His first official act as king, he reestablished his connection with the living God and tries to bring the nation back under God's rule and God's authority. I don't have time this morning to give us all of what Hezekiah did because we just don't have it. But listen, the key to success is right here. Second Chronicles 31.21 says... In everything that Hezekiah undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly, and so he prospered. Hezekiah turned himself and his nation back to God, and as a result, he prospered. It says literally he was the greatest king in all of Judah and all of Israel since the time of King David and Solomon. Hezekiah was known as the greatest king. Why? Because he put his hope and his trust in God from the beginning of his reign all the way through. Now, the thing is, we've got to come back to this. There's this incredible crisis that's looming. The, the king of Assyria has sent messengers saying, I am going to take you down. You think you're trusting in anything else? Well, you got it wrong, buddy. I'm coming to take you down. And what does Hezekiah do? Well, let's look what it says. We don't have time this morning to read through all of this. But let me give you some highlights. Hezekiah receives the word that this is a problem. And he tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. And his first response is he goes into the temple. Very first thing he does. He goes into the temple. And while he's in the temple praying, he sends his leaders to the prophet Isaiah. And he says, tell him what's going on. Tell him! And when King Ezekiel's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And he goes on saying, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to defeat your enemies. Then it says, Hezekiah took this notification from the, the, the leader of the king of I mean the king of Assyria and he literally laid it out before the Lord in the temple 
After he got the word back from Isaiah, don't be afraid, just trust me. And so, literally, Hezekiah takes this proclamation from the king of Syria and says, I'm going to come and take your world down. And he lays it before God. And he says, God, you through your prophet said to me, don't be afraid, trust me, I'll take care of you. So, here you go, there's the problem. And this is what happens in response to that prayer. Isaiah sends a message to Hezekiah. See, there are two different locations. And Isaiah doesn't know what's going on in the temple. He's not there. But God does. And God speaks to his prophet and sends a message. And the message says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I have heard your prayer concerning this problem that you're facing. And this is the word that the Lord has spoken. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks that king. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as he flees. Picture this. My daddy said, I don't have to do what you say. <laughs> That's what God is saying to King Hezekiah. I got this. You just sit back and relax. And by, while you're at it, just make fun of him. Make him feel stupid for trying to beat up on my children, my people, because I've got this. I don't have time to go into all of it. But the last thing I want you to see, verse 31 of chapter 19 of 2 Kings. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Can you imagine if you were facing a crisis in your life, and you got on your face before God and said, I don't have control of this, God. I can't fix this. There's no resources in my arsenal that'll do anything to take away this problem. And God said, don't worry about it, honey. I got it. I promise you I've got all the strength and all the resources necessary. You don't be afraid. You put your trust in me. And literally it says, God says, and at the stamp of my approval, it's my zeal. Could they mess with the wrong body? Can you imagine God ripping out of his throne and going, who's messing with my kids? Who's messing with my kids? I'm that kind of dad. I'm that kind of a grandpa. Someone messes with my children, I want to rip their faces off. And I see this here in God's word to us. From Isaiah to King Hezekiah. Nobody's messing with my people. Now, why didn't God say that to Ahaz? Because Ahaz thumbed his nose at God. The same offer was made. The same offer was made. I'm giving you a blank check, Ahaz. All the resources that I have at my disposal are yours. Just name it. I'll do it. I've got my own people. I'm good. Hezekiah saw that growing up in that house. And he realized the error that his father made. And so when he comes into power, his very first act is getting back on his face before God as the leader of the nation. And the, calling the people to true worship. This. See that thing on the sign that says, Paying Barber's that was a quote from one of the commentators I read last night. Remember what King Ahaz did? 
He took all of the stuff out of the out of the worthy and valuable stuff out of the temple, and he sent it to the king of Assyria, saying, "Would you please come to my defense? I'm giving you all of the wealth of my God to come to my defense." And what was the response that God said? You put your trust in him and you're going to find out very quickly that he's going to send people to cut your hair off. To shave your legs. And that's a euphemism for saying shaving your private parts. And cutting off your beard. You're going to be completely shamed. And so this commentator said, isn't it ironic that Ahaz paid a fee for a barber to come? He thought he was getting an alliance with a powerful ally, but instead he reaped shame upon himself and on the nation. Powerful, powerful thought. But this is the thing that is so, so cool. Going back to the statement that Isaiah is making to Ahaz just before the promise is made of I'll do anything for you, he says... <clears throat> If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. One of the commentators said, trust or bust. If you do not stand firm in the faith, Ahaz, you will not fall. That is a warning that I'm giving you from God to Ahaz. And then God says, if you'll stand in your faith, you get a blank check from me. You ask anything and it's yours. You trust me 100%, it's yours. I'm, on your, I'm in, your, in your court. I will back you up. I will take care of anything that you need. And Ahaz was too hard-hearted and too stupid, quite frankly. And he thumbed his nose in the face of God. Ephesians Ephesians chapter 6, and it's actually verses 10 through 13 I want to read to you as we close out this time. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, stand. Two things that I thought of as I was trying to wrap this up in my mind and come up with a so what? Why have we looked at this this morning? I was really intrigued by that meeting at the aqueduct on the upper pole in the washerman's field and the fact that it happened twice. And what God said to me was Ahaz was the representative of the Davidic dynasty of the nation. Hezekiah was the representative of the Davidic dynasty of the nation. And I gave the Davidic dynasty 
a second chance. One mess up wasn't going to ruin everything. In that one person's life, it did, Bob. Ahaz lost it. He lost all hope. His heart was hardened. But the nation and the covenant relationship I had with the nation and with the David dynasty, that was still open for discussion. And I gave one more chance for the leader to turn and repent. And the Lord whispered to me as I was reflecting. He said, the same is true in every single case, Bob. You might mess up. You might totally destroy our relationship. But there's absolutely nothing that will negate my love for you, Bob. There's absolutely nothing that will negate my grace for you, Bob. The only thing that will make my grace unavailable to you is if you harden your heart to the point where you can no longer hear me or receive it. Because the offer is always there. There's a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance, and a fifth chance, and a sixth chance. As long as you will turn, as long as you will repent and put your faith and your trust and your hope in me, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always have your back. And you will always have the resources available to you, just as I made an offer to Ahaz. That's the number one that I saw. There's always the second opportunity. There's always a chance to turn until the point comes where you turn your heart so hard you can't hear him anymore. That's number one. Number two. God said to Ahaz, God said to Hezekiah, and God, through Paul, said to the Christian world, I've got your back. Trust me. Now, Paul went a little bit further and he said, once you've done everything that I've asked of you, and you've aligned yourself with me, putting on the armor of God, in other words, you've submitted yourself to my protection. Once you've done that, you don't need to do anything else. You stand. And you let the enemy bring his worst. Remember the Stonewall Jackson? A few weeks back I talked about how he was, how he was admired through in the midst of battle. He would just sit on his horse with his sword out and ask later why in the world could he do that? When bullets were flying, and he said, because I serve the living God, and it's God's decision whether or not one of those bullets are going to hit me, and my running and hiding or jumping or moving isn't going to change any of that. I'm going to just stand and do what I've been asked to do, and I'm leading this army. That's what God is asking of me, and that's what God is asking of you. But your trust in me. Do not be afraid. And once you've got yourself completely surrendered to me, Stand firm. God is so good. Amen. I love him. 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 He has my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. And it's a wonderful thing to know that I can trust him. I hope the same is true for you guys. Let's pray.